Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. Transitioning us from from the excuse me the, the place of of revival, um, which if I'm being completely honest with you, um, is not a place that I ever intended on leaving. Um, but he's transitioning us from revival into resurrection, and um, it's really interesting. We talked about last last week. If you're listening to this live, I would encourage you to, to or if you have it, um, to try to reference um, last Sunday and Thursday's messages just because um, I, I was here most of the morning yesterday and I've got six pages of just notes, um, and I'm including the quick notes. So if I go down the rabbit trail of either one of the last two services, there's just no chance in the world uh, that we're going to get out of here. Um, and, and Jerry's got to go to work tomorrow. Got to, we've got to get in the mood. But um, I think that the thing he's really bringing in us is the thought that he's there is a um, what we have deemed a, a rewilding that he's actually doing, where he's he's setting us free, and in the midst of this rewilding process, he is um, dealing with lines within us. He's dealing with boundaries within our heart and within our spirit and really within our emotions and he is also really trying to transition us it's a very it's unique this is the first time that maybe I can remember where we're going through something that is so absolutely personal and individual but we're actually getting to walk through it corporately I'm not I'm not saying this well but in the years past we had to come up with teachings about how it was part of who we are for you to feel alone. And I'm not saying that there's not elements of truth to that, and I'm not saying that that wasn't accurate for a season. season. But that we know that scripturally there are some things that are true, and then there are some things that are more true. Just in life, there are some things that are true, and there are some things that are more true. 
And you think about, um, you know, well, I, I don't know how I feel about that. Well, then how do you feel like it's the fact that Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Does that mean you stop serving? No. He, he's taking us into a greater reality that's going to still utilize the basis of what we've known. So we, 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 we really thought, I thought, that that alone lifestyle was just going to be kind of our thing. We would say things about, well, Jesus, you know, was alone, and, and we're, you know, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Well, you know, that that's true. That, that is true. But we what we forget is that John the Baptist wasn't alone. He had a whole group of disciples. Remember, those guys came to Jesus. So John, we're John's disciples. In fact, some of Jesus' disciples came from John's disciples. So we think that John the Baptist was just some, you know, nomad in the, in the middle of, of nowhere, like Ray at the beginning of, of Star Wars. You know, he's just, you know, roving through there trying to find some um, stuff to cash in to get one of those little bread packets. Um, and what you actually find, that's what you would have done if you were trying to study diet of milk and honey um, and grasshoppers. Um, but what you really find in the midst of that understanding is that you, you, in this wilderness place, what that is a, a very segmented version of what the wilderness is supposed to be. Because, yes, you enter the wilderness alone um, in that it is personal, but he's actually empowering now this place for us to walk it together and where we actually get to see the wilderness place not be a dry place where we stand alone because God's really correcting and purifying and refining and seeing just how faithful we'll be, but he's actually calling us to make that place like the garden. And in the midst of that moment, you know, I mentioned this the other night, but it didn't hit me till I got home that I mentioned that the first thing that God said wasn't good was that man was alone. The first not good mentioned in the Bible. What I messed up about that was um, I, I didn't finish that thought. If you carry that thought forward, what we could say is, well, I'm not alone. You know, it's me and the Lord. Well, if you remember, when God made the assessment that Adam was alone and said it wasn't good, he'd already been walking with Adam daily in the cool of the garden. So the relationship that Adam, that God deemed within Adam that was inadequate wasn't the fact that God wasn't with him. He already had that relationship secure. You know what he was looking for? People. He literally said, I as God, the creator, am relational in nature and have never been alone. And so why, well, that's deep. We could go like deep theology stuff. How has God never been alone? Because he had to have created the angels. He had to have created the elders. He had to create the living creatures. Yep, but he, did he create the Trinity, or was it just in him? God's never been alone. So, within that concept, he looks at us, created in his likeness and in his image, and he says, it's not good that you're alone. And that wasn't a statement about Adam's separation from God, because at that moment, there was no separation. It was so um, transparent and obvious that, that Adam could hear God walking through the garden with him. Listening to the footsteps of God would probably be a pretty cool thing to have if you're going to go on a cruise. And so within that thought, there is...
is something where now he's transitioning us into resurrection because here's the other kicker. When you look at Jesus, now there's a lot of stuff that separated Jesus' resurrection from every other resurrection. But the biggest thing is Jesus wasn't resurrected only. The biggest thing is that Jesus was was a sinless man that was you know he was he was sacrificed on behalf of your sins. But in a tangible sense, what was the biggest difference between Jesus being raised and everybody else who had been raised? When Jesus came out of the tomb, he led captivity captive, and David and Elijah and Moses are walking around Jerusalem. She thinks he's the gardener. He's walking. He says, all right, guys, hang on. We need to go talk to her. He goes to speak with Mary Magdalene, and they're like, well, you know, while we're here, we might as well see the city. It says that people saw them walking through the streets. What do you think that meant? David's like, let's see what this means. I like this place. So they're walking through the city. You realize that's the different, one of the primary differences between Jesus' resurrection is Jesus' resurrection was a re- resurrection of never being alone. Even in his resurrection, it was not alone. Even in the fact beyond that, spiritually speaking, that it says his resurrection is our resurrection. So literally, his resurrection life became our resurrection life. So even the fact we, I, I would argue that you can't move in from revival to resurrection and not do it in relationship. Not just with him, but also with others. Now, you know, you say I'm wrong. And you talk about it now. You say, yeah, I think that's what I think I'm going to do. And you tell me. That's fine. I'm comfortable with that. I'm just telling you that's what I think. And I've got the mic. So um, this morning, we're going to look at, remember, the end of three is encouragement. Remember that, right? Yeah. We're going to look at this concept of resurrection and peace. And we're going to cover a whole bunch of ground really, really quickly. And it's probably going to be a lot, um, a lot of unique stuff. But if the basis of this is that he's resurrecting us, he's bringing us into a life that we then can live and actually demonstrate life in. So we get to live in demonstrations of life. There are a lot of people, and, and, and I could argue that maybe even myself included at some stages of life that was alive but not really in life. And, and when we talk about this, I, I still go back to what we said Thursday night, that this is why Jesus came not as a lawyer or a judge or an accountant, thank you, or an accountant or a anything else. He then, Jesus came as a doctor to make them whole and a prophet to tell them what God says they are. And, and make no mistake, Jesus is what God has to say. Anything in your Bible that you believe theologically that you don't find in the life of Jesus about the nature of God, you should find it here. is the word. So, the 
we start flipping to our pages, some of that stuff's just not biblical. We'll, we'll think about the fact that Jesus was the living word. And so his life should demonstrate what God was like to him. So God has crucified the difference between revival and resurrection. And this is not something defined by lines, but rather the removal of them. This is not something defined by the presence of a concrete doctrinal stance, but rather the unknowing that comes with being poor in spirit. Only in the kingdom could we experience more of God than we ever thought possible and yet feel, uh, excuse me, um, and yet feel we need more of him than we ever thought we could have. I'm going to read that again. Only in the kingdom could we experience more of God than we ever thought possible and yet feel we need more of him than we ever thought we could have. Bobby Connor, some of you remember Bobby Connor from the Romanian Starter. Bobby Connor says, we have become far too familiar with a God we hardly know. Because only in him can we have the tension that says, I get to know him and says, unknowing is the way I get to know him. Only in him could we have the tension that says, I'll never find all of him. He is unsearchable in his ways. That doesn't mean he doesn't desire to be searched. That just means that as soon as you become an aficionado in that aspect of who God is, you have decided where to level off. As soon as you determine that you understand him in a certain aspect of his nature, in a certain aspect of how he moves and how he does things, and have no more need to, to find him and to be with him in that way, you have determined where to stop. And what has happened is, in many ways, what we have done, and I mean this as, as our church and many that, um, that I know that function as the servants of the Lord, what we have struggled with is the thought that it, it becomes somewhat of a wrestling match to come before God, inherit Him, uh, find Him, and in the midst of that, then find the principles of His ways that come as a result and not then feel that that is the end point. The encounter with Him is never the means to the end. It is the end. So what happens is we come before God and we get in the deep parts of his heart and he starts showing us who he is and these deep principles and revelations and encounters and prophecies and all this stuff. And then we feel really good about that. So then we, we begin to think that that's what being with him is for. As soon as being with him becomes for anything else than just being with him, we've missed the point. Because the measuring stick is no is never going to be another revelation, another insight, another principle. The measuring stick is always going to be closeness. It's the only measuring stick we have. And so what begins to happen then is we become very skilled and schooled in how to come to him to get what he has in his hand. And we come before him in these familiar pathways and, and, and I'm, look, here's the deal. I am, I have done this. As a pastor, 
think one of the hardest things to do is to make sure that when I'm coming before him, I'm not coming before him because I need his money. One of the hardest things for, a, for somebody to minister is to, uh, whether it's worship or whether it's teaching or whatever, something where you feel an obligation to teach people is to, to have a heart that just wants to be with him knowing that he will be faithful to speak, not wanting to be with him knowing that he'll be faithful to speak. Because the reality is, as soon as my intimacy and relationship with him only serves my profession, I've become intimate as a professional. And we have names for that in our culture. It's called prostitution. And, and seminaries are full of people who are taught to be intimate and in relationship for the success of their profession. So we come before him and we find his face and we kiss him and then we say thank you and we take good things and leave. So Bobby Connor says we've become far too familiar with a God we hardly know. This is the dance that we are called to, to come closer than ever and still remain childlike in our wonder of who he is. Within this process, it demands upon a whole new level of death and burial so that resurrection can be inherited. We must remember that it's always inherited. As soon as we think we have obtained life or resurrection, we place the uh, obtained it ourselves. We've done something that God did, and we place the onus upon our efforts and not His grace. This allows us to draw lines of separation and isolation, and we cannot embrace resurrection where death comes to life again and expect our man-made lines to remain. Remember this. We cannot inherit resurrection and expect our man-made lines to continue to exist. They will be eradicated when resurrection comes. It's just, it has to be. In this dimension, the lines of death, the lines of time, the lines of perception, and the lines of doctrine become erased. We have found in our culture, in our current culture, that in Pentecostalism, uh, Pentecostalism, when you put it on paper, it doesn't matter. Uh, we've spent, just ask Lori, we have spent the last 30 years gleaning the understanding of the love of God and the fatherhood of God and the goodness of God. 30 years, approximately, that the Pentecostal charismatic church has spent gleaning the understanding that he is a good, good father, that he, first of all, that he is a father, that he loves you, and that he's a good father. The challenge becomes when we draw lines as to who that goodness extends. There is now a generation that is rising that is willing to question what we have said about him being a good, good father because they believe it. And because they believe it, they can say, how can he be a good, good father here, but not a good, good father here? How is he a good, good father to the people in the church view, but not a good, good father to the people who don't believe in him? Because it's not what he does 
If it's what he does, he gets to choose to who he demonstrates to. It's who he is. When it's who you are, there are no lines of division that separates where it is demonstrated. So because they believe, they can say he has to be a good, good father here if he is here. How can he be a good, good father to this group, but not to the Orthodox Catholic or the Lutheran or the Muslim or the atheist? You see, the problem is we found that when we work to build an inheritance, we also tend to attempt to dictate how that inheritance can be spent. And while it's hard to admit it, most of us older ones that have been around for a while inherited the good, good father doctrine and also mingled it with the God sends people to hell and punishes them with everlasting torment doctrine. And this generation looks up at that and says, something doesn't line up. We like the God of the New Testament for the people in our tribe, but we like the God of the Old Testament for the people in everybody else's tribe. We take Romans and we give them Leviticus. This is called tribalism. One of the realities we must acknowledge, and this is going to sound like the most obvious thing you've ever heard, is that war is not good for your soul. Sounds like the most obvious thing you've ever heard, right? Hold on, Jacob. We've been told that in the last days there'll be wars and rumors of wars. But look with me, if you will, at uh, uh, Mark chapter 13, verse 7. And let's look at what it actually says. This is going to be where we're going to kind of jump from here. Mark chapter 13, verse 7 says, And when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled. For such things must needs be, but the end is not yet. I, I want to be entirely transparent with you. I, I don't actually think I ever understood that when I was always taught that that when you see, how many people have heard in our wonderful eschatology teachings, when you see wars and rumors of wars, know that it's the last days. What does Jesus actually say? When you hear of wars and rumors of them, it's not the end. It's literally the exact opposite of what we said. In fact, he goes as far as to say in the midst of this, don't worry. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be troubled, don't be in fear, don't be in dismay, because this measure of, of what you find in this entire chapter and this section of verses specifically is actually a treatise on how we are to navigate life as image prophets and image bearers in these days. I made that term up. Image prophets. What would an image prophet mean? Image prophets means it's my responsibility to be the only, the, the, maybe the first image of God that they ever see. It's prophetic in nature that I'm demonstrating who he is. So what Jesus is saying in this context is what an image bearer looks like. And he tells them that in the last days there's going to be wars and rumors. 
members of them, but don't be afraid and also know that it's not the end. So what have we done? We've gotten scared, and and the way we've satiated our fear is by reminding ourselves that it's the last day. And in the process, John Hagen sold a whole bunch of books. Christian bookstores are full of them, of last days teaching. And many of them really, really ride heavy on this. How many um, remember the term Cold War Kid? Does anybody know what a Cold War Kid is? Cold War Kids are kids that grew up during, during the Cold War. And if you grew up during the Cold War, one of the things that they used to do is they used to have drills where the atomic bomb was going to go off and it would make you get under your desk. Anybody ever heard of anything like that? Well, uh, Tasha and I yesterday watched uh, a movie called Killing Kennedy. Um, Killing Kennedy is uh, based on a book that was written. It's, um, it's really good, actually. Um, but it's, it's about the, the, the life of Kennedy, specifically the last days of Kennedy. Um, it's written by Bill O'Reilly. I think he's written about Kennedy. Um, and um, I don't think he's got – yeah, he's got the media, thank goodness. But he's, everybody else pretty well, he's, he's killed. Um, and so in, the, in this movie – one of the things that they're talking about is the, the dealings that they're having between them and Russia and how they're having these drills because they think Russia now has their um, nuclear bombs in Cuba and they're going to fire them. So they're showing these drills, and, I, and that name uh, re- it just sparked something in me, Cold War Kids. I thought about that, and I thought, okay, think about it this way. So here's the challenge, folks. We've got – I'm not a Cold War kid, but I'm an Iraq War kid. That frames how I think about certain people. It just does. People that look a certain way, people that live in certain places, or people that worship or believe a certain way. I have opinions about, preconceived ideas about, simply based on the time I was raised. And unfortunately, it drastically, if I allowed it to, affects my theology about how God thinks about me. Because what we don't remember, Cold War kids is that while you were underneath your desk thinking that God, or excuse me, thinking that Russia was going to blow you up, the thing that I find to be fascinating about that is what in the world is a desk going to do for an atomic bomb? It's the most ridiculous thing ever. It's, it's worse than like, you know, going, at least the cause of the tornado makes sense. Like the under the desk for the atomic bomb. One of the other things was put your coat over your head. Seriously. That was, I was reading like the, the, the steps for the children. Put your coat over your head and get under your desk. And do you realize that at the exact same time that you were doing that here in the United States, that the Russian kids were doing that in Russia? We thought that they were evil in Russia. And they thought that we were too. That's called lying. That's called atrocity. And while it doesn't mean that Russia, ha- I'm not in any way, believe me, there's enough about Russia that I don't like. I don't need to make any comments about how we feel in our country's dealings with Russia, nationally speaking. But I do want to make the point that whatever they're doing, that doesn't mean that it changes how God feels about those people. And oftentimes our experience directly paints how we view people or our perspective, and we draw lines within tribalism. And not only do those lines affect our ability to relate, which is a, is a problem 
to as well. But it's specifically, if we allow it to, will affect our theology about how God feels about things. That's just the truth. What would you do if, if uh, now this is obviously going kind of far, but what would you do if God visited you and said that he wanted you to pray because Osama bin Laden was on your heart? Seriously. I'm just being honest. I don't know what I would do. I, I'm not saying this because I have an answer. <laughs> you know, I would pray, Lord God, where are you? Can we get you some cordial? Seriously. So that kind of thing within this wars of rumors of wars is really interesting, especially when we look at our culture. And I'm going somewhere with this. We must understand that wars and rumors of wars include things like Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. Rumors of wars like Iran and North Korea. Rumors of trade wars and even cold wars. However, the most dangerous and more subtle war that attempts to draw us all into battle is this thing called a culture war. This is a war of no quarter, no compromise, and take no prisoners. It is fight to the death. The ideological war is, in my opinion, the most dangerous of them all because it is the most justifiable and sanctified war. However, it is still contrary to Paul's doctrine that our battle isn't against flesh and blood. In fact, one writer that I read said another way to interpret that scripture is, if it bleeds, it's not my enemy. If it bleeds, I'm not legally allowed to have it as an enemy. Do you realize that the number one sermon, the number one sermon in the first two centuries of the church was love your enemy as yourself? The number one sermon. Why? Because they needed it. But in America, we've evolved. And if I can be really honest with you and really press some buttons, the truth of it is when we say things like our lines falling down and opening our hearts and allowing something to happen and be stretched, we're very, in this house, we're very comfortable with that as long as it's spiritual. As long as it means God's going to do a new thing and he's going to come and do it spiritually, but as long as he doesn't incorporate people, I'm good. Because why? Because we're very good with spiritual. I'm very good. I don't have any spiritual lines. God, you do whatever you want. You come through the ceiling. You come through the floor. You come through the walls. However you want to come, I'm good with it. But then when he says, I want you to lay down your lines, and I want you to abandon tribalism, and I don't want you to engage in culture war because it is damning to our soul. It is the number one robber of life in peace in this hour. So Paul says, if it bleeds, it can't be your enemy. It can't. Now, I'm not going to get into pacifism. That's not the point of the message. But I certainly do believe that we have to understand that as soon as I wield this Bible to bring judgment on somebody else, I've missed the point of Jesus because he used it to show grace to everybody else. In fact, you know how?
how we get in this whole thing about the devil and how you fight off the devil with the Bible? Do you realize Jesus wasn't engaging the devil with the Bible? The devil quoted scripture to Jesus. Jesus just corrected him. Why? Because his demonstration was that God will never use the Bible to bring accusation. says, if it bleeds, it's not your enemy. This is the war that causes us to draw the lines of tribalism. War is the primary source of what we now know as post-traumatic stress disorder. Culture war is doing the same thing. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it in the literal sense, but I'm saying it has the same effects. PTSD is, a, is an emotional disorder that is absolutely affecting the, the, the literal lives of the men and women who serve in battle. And this is something they've been dealing with for years, and it's actually now we just have terminology, we have language for it. But it is my opinion that in the same way PTSD is something that emotionally affects people who've been in war, that similar concept is something that affects us emotionally and spiritually in the same similar-like fashion when we engage in culture war. When we draw the same lines. Because if you if you remember, um, if you'll look ahead, I think I have some time. Yeah, um, Psalm 27. Look at Psalm 27. Now, this is, I, I've literally read this passage every day about 10 times um, since last week or so. It's, Psalm 27 has is, is just been good for me. But one of the things that I really like is, about in verse 3, my heart will not be afraid even when the army rises to attack. And, and some of the other uh, verses actually say, when wars rage against me. Now, that is literal, and that's also figurative. And what he says is that in the midst of the attempt to be drawn into war, he will stay in a place of contemplation. So that's what we talked about on Thursday night, meditation and contemplative prayer, how we begin to rehearse unto God what He said over us, how we begin to focus on His goodness and do all those kinds of things. Because it is my opinion that the culture war that is drawing and pulling upon us every single day, and I don't care what side you're on because that's not the point, that thing is what is the biggest threat to your peace in this day. Why? Because we learned long ago how to fight the devil. Right now, I have no doubt that if some, like, Latin demonic spirit could come in, you guys would engage in warfare, and that thing would be kicked out of here so hard and so fast, it would nail hit it. Yet, why do we allow talk radio and 24-hour news to dictate our emotions, to dictate what we think about people, to dictate how we feel people have access to God or not, whether we think they're going to hell or not, whether we think that they deserve grace or not? If it bleeds, it is not your enemy. 
This kind of PTSD comes from willing participation in the constant stress of the culture wars, 24-hour cable news, talk radio, and social media, always in a stance of tribal warfare. It is good to be regularly informed. It is not good to be constantly in fear or in rage. And if what you're taking in takes you into fear or rage, anger, whatever that you want to call that, it is bad for your soul. That is war and literally fights against the peace that he desires you to live in. I'm not saying you shouldn't read the newspaper. What I am saying is, if when you read the newspaper, your temperament changes, you should stop reading the newspaper. And, and look, I'm, this is me. I have not, most of you know me, I really like to read. I usually will spend about an hour a day reading news of different sources, just trying to be informed, because I enjoy that. I like politics. I've actually not read any news for over a week. It's been me alone. Zero. I have no idea what's happening in our country right now. I have no, we're, we may be speaking, Russia may, Russian may be the new national language, and I wouldn't even know. Uh, but the, the truth of it is, we as a people uh, exist in this society. Why? Because talk radio and 24-hour news and social media thrive on you coming back for more. And so the way they keep you coming back for more is fear and rage. What they did is they learned and adopted the sitcom uh, uh, mantra or method, or I say sitcom, uh, TV series. You've got to have a cliffhanger. CNN's got a breaking news story about when Anderson Cooper goes to the bathroom. I mean, seriously, every news station has, it's all about what? Breaking news. And now my, this, this is when I do get frustrated. Now what they do is they actually say things that they know aren't true, but they phrase it in a way that they didn't say it was so that you'll keep watching to see if it's possible. Did Obama say he was moving back into the White House and that he was going to adopt Melania as his daughter? Stay tuned later to see. Did Donald Trump shave his head in a WWE match? Stay tuned later to see. Of course not. But what do we do? We got to watch and see. That's the way it works. And so within that, we are not in peace. Once again, our responsibility is to be people of resurrection. People of resurrection resurrect others. That's the difference. Resurrected people resurrect others. In revival, we only have the ability to revive those that were once vived. In resurrection, we can make everything that was dead live. That's the difference. And so it robs from us the life of resurrection that we're intended to live in. And it just robs life from us. Both of these, that is the basic intent of the news. If you're scared or you're stirred, you're more likely to keep watching. This is not a life we could live. It seems that some within this are just waiting for their side or their tribe to win this war. How's that working out for you? Like, seriously, what we do is we join our group, and I, I'll, just, I'll just use myself as an example because this is getting on too much. We've already gone far off the rails. I grew up knowing very clearly where my lines were and what my tribe was. Just the way it works. I understood exactly what my lines were. I was an American, Protestant, Christian, Pentecostal, Republican, working class, conservative. 
Those were my lines, and that was my cry. Just being honest, that was my cry. So the problem was, I had issue whoever with everybody else that wasn't an American, Protestant, Christian, Pentecostal, Republican, working class conservative. Now, I could, like, handle you if you fit two out of the five. You're, like, okay, but you're not going to vote. Why? Because the only way for me to know that I'm right is to know that you're wrong. And the only way that then I'm reassured that I'm right is when you change from being wrong to being right, which is always going to be with my right. And so those lines are drawn and tribes are drawn. And as soon as I do that, I've separated myself from being able to actually engage in life with them. And what I actually learned is I not only robbed myself of the ability to bring life to these people, I actually just flat out robbed myself of the life that comes in exchanging with people who think, feel, and live differently than I do. If you, it's just this simple. If you don't know a Muslim person by their first name, if you don't know a gay person by their first name, if you don't know an atheist by their first name, if you don't know a Catholic by their first name, you're probably missing part of life. And the truth of it is, I'm not going to be able to be to those people what I need them to be as long as they're a statistic and a number that exists on the other side of my line. Why? Because then all I have to do is watch the news and it's going to tell me who those people are. I don't need to know what Black Lives Matter is. I saw it on the news. I don't need to know what this is. I saw it on the news. They told me what it is. The problem is most of the news is geared towards what we already think anyway. So it just feeds right into what we already believe. Why? Because I like my cry. And all it does is tell me I'm right. So what Jesus actually came to do is to destroy these lines. Do you know that the number one thing in a natural sense that Jesus demonstrated that the Jewish people, I'm not talking about spiritually because we know that he demonstrated the Father first and foremost. Naturally, the number one thing that he demonstrated that knocked everybody on their heels was his absolute, his absolute resistance of nationalism. I spent my life believing that the Antichrist, the Beast, and the Prophet were going to come as people. If you actually look at what Jesus taught and what John taught, that is the system. And it's specifically a system, a political system, a government system. It then is a government-formed belief system where the church gets in bed with the government. Literally. The Antichrist and the prophet is that. It's literally, that's what John taught. I mean, study, just when you have time, Look at the beast, the Antichrist, and the prophet throughout the Bible. Don't just don't just turn to your notes of your Dave's Bible and, and have him tell you all kinds of good stuff in short, uh, in, uh, along the lines of all black people are going to hell. Don't start that one. So what we have is we have some of these things that just draw these lines. And what it causes me to do is to say I'm right. And in order for me to be right, I have to know that you're wrong. And so all of these lines become drawn. And then it robs us of peace. And we enter then into this uh, cycle where tribalism is self-perpetuating. We're waiting for everyone to agree with me so that I can have peace. I 
came in, I can't have peace until you agree with me. I'm not talking about withdrawing or cultural apathy. I'm just saying I believe it is impossible for us to embrace the way of Jesus, of loving our neighbor and our enemy as ourselves, and also retain our tribalism and draw lines of separation and isolation. I have three or four strong political opinions. I'm not going to tell you what those are. I am not that stupid. I have three or four really strong political opinions. Oh, by the way, on these matters, I'm right. Kids, there's any question. I'm absolutely right. Miss Babcock, she'll tell you, I know I'm right. She's not going to say I'm right. She's going to tell you that I know that I'm right. I care very much about your opinions. I'm not suggesting you let things go like that. What I am suggesting is that if I base my peace on any type of agreement on those things, I will only feel at peace in my tribe of like-minded people. And then we become stuck in reactive tribalism. And we're actually part of the problem. Now, hear this. If we become stuck in reactive tribalism, we are part of the problem no matter how right we are on the issue. If you get stuck in tribalism, you become part of the problem even if you're right on the issue. That's the kicker. That is the kicker. Tribalism is the us versus them group thing. Any version of this will only justify within us the presence of insecurity, anxiety, and ultimately rage. Tribalism is what's led us to really wonderful things like, oh, I don't know, the Nazi invasion of the rest of Europe, racism in our country, slavery, all of these lines. Or release. That is why all groups, please hear me, all groups. 
victimize themselves. Has anybody heard anything on the news lately about this victim mentality? Anybody heard anything about this? It's pretty popular. Both sides are saying the other side does it. That's the funny thing about it. You know why? Because they do. Do you realize that only when you make yourself the victim in the midst of that, do you still have the ability to say that you've been put down or that somebody hasn't treated you right or somebody has kept something from you? I can't keep defending myself unless I feel like the other one is on the offensive. And my honest opinion is that in there is the biggest um, thing that I see is that the church, Christianity, is maybe some of the biggest victim mentality of anything. American Christendom right now is thriving. They just won't tell you that on the news. American Christendom right now, we have, we have freedom of religion. Do you realize that there was an actual campaign that said that we weren't allowed to say Merry Christmas? And that had never happened. Why? Because they needed us to feel like victims. Why? Because we turn out and vote and we give our money. I mean, it's just honest. So it's the same with social causes on other sides, where social causes will say this is happening and this is happening and this is happening. Why? Because it needs those lines. And what he's actually saying is that is bad for our souls. And what he's saying is it will threaten against the peace and against that contemplative life that he's calling us to live. Why? Because even in the midst of wars raging around me, I have to know peace because it's my job to introduce life into that place. This, what, I, what actually theologically is called a scapegoat mentality, where you have to find something else to scapegoat or project your pain, frustration, anger, insecurity onto. The scapegoat mentality of accusation is the heart of Satanism. Why? Well, do you realize that in every single language, maybe two, the term devil or Satan means slanderer or accuser. So, as soon as them being wrong has to be so that I can be right, I have to go into accusation so that that can happen. So I go into criticism and accusation. As soon as I do that, I actually, here's the real wild part. Oftentimes within the church, we feel like that, that doing so is because we're trying to hold up, we're trying to prop up our sanctified lifestyle, our, our values, or our morals, or our holiness, or our whatever it might be. But anytime you go into criticism and accusation in order for your sanctification to be propped up, we've actually partnered with the accuser, which is Satanism. There's really no other word for it. God is a father of advocacy. However, many times it can become confusing to us because we think if we advocate on behalf of another, we are bringing damage to our own cause. For them to come up, I must go down. That's what the world tells us. He says, I've made a level playing field. In the kingdom, I'm talking spiritually speaking, 
he says, I've made a level playing field. Do you realize that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and he said, I'm going to send you a comforter, I'm going to create the church. Do you realize that at that moment, what Peter drew from was that handmaidens would get the same thing as heirs and sons. Remember what he said. He prophesied. He said, this is written in Joel. Why did he prophesy from Joel 2? Have you ever thought that was weird? Why did Peter say that what was happening when they all started speaking in tongues was Joel 2? In Joel 2, it doesn't say anything at all about speaking in tongues. In fact, if he would have quoted from Isaiah, where it talks about the stammering lips and, and, and you know, I could have got that. Why did he quote in, in the last days, your, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. I will pour out my spirit upon your handmaidens, upon your sons, and upon your servants. And what he actually, the reason he's quoting that is because when the spirit comes, it levels the playing field. And at that point, servants get to eat at the same table as heirs. That is the father advocacy of God. And in that way, I don't lose my seat at the table as my father for somebody else to also get a seat at that table. He just increases the table size. That's how this works. So within this understanding, tribalism can be defined as my family, my religion, my political party, my country, my social group. Growing up, this has been part of how I thought. However, it caused me to think that anybody else that didn't have these values were wrong. And if they ever want to get right, all they'll have to do is become like me. Let's look at what Paul says about this in Ephesians chapter 2. If you're wondering, Adam never going to stop wondering about this verse. What Paul says is, is stunning, to say the least. But it says here that Jesus, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but Jesus is our peace. Who made both one and broke down the middle wall of partition, having abolished in the flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that he might create in himself of the two one new man. Now, I don't know if anyone knows this, but I don't read this in a rationalist way. Reconciling peace is Jesus. He has made the Jew and the non-Jew in Christ one. Do you realize at the time how much that had to mess with them? The Jews believed that they had to, at the very least, wash, in most cases, destroy any utensils a non-Jew had touched. That is the degree of separation and disdain they had for anyone who's different. What he actually says here is, Jesus has now become what makes us one, and there is no more a Jew and a non-Jew. That is like the nth degree of, that is the nth degree of this. By dying in this sacrifice, he's broken down every wall of prejudice that separated us and has now made us equal through the union of Christ. He has now made us equal through the union of Christ. Eth this is verse 15. Yeah, verse 15. Ethnic hatred has been dissolved by the crucifixion of his precious body upon the cross. It is my opinion, we said this the other day, that we're going to see an end to racism. 
but it, we're going to have to see an end to racism within the church first. We're not going to see an end to racism in the world if we don't first see it first. And I'm sorry, if you don't think it exists, I'm not suggesting you miss this, but I, generally speaking, if you don't think it exists in church, you haven't visited many churches. I was reading the other day from um, this uh, uh, lady I work with, Dustin Ward, that I work with, and she was talking about as a woman, um, she was has given her life to uh, to study. She's a theologian, and she said that not only was she um, she's from Southwest Bible School uh, or, or Southern Baptist School, um, and obviously, if you've heard the news at all, um, the Southern Baptist um, denomination is struggling right now. a sermon bragging about the fact that he told a woman who was being uh, violently abused by her husband that he wanted her to go home that night and to pray for him after he went to sleep and to not leave him and that he was probably going to get up and beat her even worse than he had previously. And he was going to, and he said that um, she came to church the next morning and had two black eyes and he said that he was really, really happy because he knew that that meant that the guy was reaching rock bottom. said that she had the, the privilege of meeting one of her mentors, um, somebody she read all of his books and looked up to him for years. Um, she didn't mention his name, but she said that um, the first thing he said to her when he saw her, this has been a couple of years ago, he looked her up and down and said, well, you're a lot better looking than the rest of the, the female people here. So believe me when I tell you that racism and misogyny and sexist thinking exists in the church. It has been protected, and it has been um, sheltered, and the, the the reality of it is, I, I I'm not even suggesting, I'm not suggesting anybody should walk away, but I understand why people are walking away from certain churches and denominations based on the decisions that have been made in their home. That deconstruction, I understand. I'm not saying you should hold your rights. I'm not saying any of that stuff. I, I understand all of that, but I also am saying if I stood stand up here at any point in time say that it, a woman should stay in an abusive situation because God wants to cause that woman um, to bring, by her ability to be a punching bag, to bring this guy to salvation. I want everybody to get up and walk away. Because the reality of it is, what I believe is, the thing we shouldn't be calling on at that moment is not just the Lord. We should be calling on the police to go arrest him and put him in jail. That's just a fact. Based on what we've been taught, it's not acceptable because that's not one of the condoned reasons for separation in the world. You can be a punching bag as long as it doesn't cheat on you. You have a problem, folks. He is our peace. And he has ended ethnic hatred. He has dissolved by the crucifixion of his presence body upon the cross, believing. 
Lord that stood condemning each of us and has now replaced it by his command. Notice that this isn't extended to the church. He has dissolved the code that legally demanded for your perfection or death. He dissolved that code and in the process has extended grace to all of us, each of us. That doesn't justify to people when they must infuse. That reality is that he has become our peace. He is the unifying factor. He destroyed blind. You you realize it would be virtually impossible for resurrection life to not destroy lines of tribalism. When you think about the fact that just life in general, for Jesus to come back from the dead, the line that separated dead and living was demolished. So literally resurrection life demolishes lines. This guy was dead. Now he's alive. I'd say that line got pretty messed up. And so what we have to think is, in the midst of this, he deals with those lines. And in my opinion, the way he does it is typically going to be through people. Because we're comfortable with God doing whatever he wants. But I don't know how comfortable any of us would feel if uh, if all of a sudden a Catholic priest came in and he was who God used to bring the next move of what he wanted to do here. We could have some issues. I was brought up to have some issues. Not Pentecost wise. Yeah, Protestant. You didn't even get to Pentecostal. What are you going to do? Get up here and genuflect? Sprinkle some water on me? That's how I was taught. I mean, I'm not even talking about the Baptists. I'm not even talking about all the rest of the spirit filled people. I'm what I honestly believe is that we have done a disservice within the charismatic movement by our obstinance towards our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters, those that have been in this a heck of a lot longer than we have. And if you look at the amount of Catholic church separations as opposed to Protestant church separations, arguably have done it better. Just being honest, they have something figured out. They keep going to the churches and then the priests didn't eat good. You know, I asked one of my friends one time, I said, how long have you been going to the church? He's like, oh, this is our fourth generation. And I said, really? Was the priest any good? He goes, no, none of us really like him, but this is what we're doing. It was, that's just the most, most normal thing in the world. So when Jesus does this, he brings us to this point where we become fitted together. Let's look back at our singular uh, singular phrase here. Because within that we have access unto the Father. Verse 19. Then you are no more strangers and sojourners. What is he doing right here? Right now, this is him defining no lines. You are no more strangers and sojourners, but are fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. I, I, I don't know that I can think of a strong enough example, but maybe the best I can just quickly think of is that would be like me coming in here and not the same, I'm just saying the, uh, the emotional, mental impression I'm making. It'd be like me coming in here and telling you that we were going to allow Muslims to become members of our church. I'm not saying it's the same, I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just simply saying to the Jewish people, hearing that non-Jews were in, included as citizens and as fellow saints, it was about as offensive of a language as you could get. Jesus was all about it. Being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom each 
severally building, fitly framed together, grows in a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. I, I'm going to close with this. Do you realize that uh, I, I like that example of how we're built together and how we house something? Do you realize that when Jesus, remember the example that he gave about how um, you take a grain of mustard seed and you, you plant it in the ground and slowly it grows a tree and that tree grows so that the birds can find shelter or lodge in its branches. Remember that example that he gave for them? Do you realize the concept of that is in Jewish um, culture, in Jewish uh, parable culture, birds represented heathen non-Jewish nations. So what Jesus looked at him and said, your faith is supposed to be mustard grains in the ground. We're going to put it in the ground and die to what you think, where your lines are, and what you believe it's supposed to be. To such a degree that when the tree grows, your what you have done will give shelter for people you hate and
justifies and calls holy my ability to condemn and accuse somebody else for not being righteous. That is heinous. That is flat out not who God is. And we can't embrace that God is good, good father here and him not be good, good father there. If God is love, then in my opinion, we've got some thinking to do about where he is standing. So, within this idea of resurrection, I think that it's really, 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 really vitally important because I do believe we have tried to look at the church as the mission field and the church as the barn. He tells us to go out to the fields of like the harvest. So why do we always keep trying to get people saved inside the church? Have you ever harvested in a barn? You harvest in a field. So as we go out in the field, we need to know this. Like the harvest, we shout out and people will, when he says it's like the harvest, what that means is everyone's harvestable in God. Everyone is hurting for the Lord. Everyone is, has, is dying to know him. And we just were looking for people to walk with us to figure it out. Because I assure you, if, you, if we don't do this, we will fall into that Kabbalistic thing that in two years we'll be willing and even feel sanctified by looking down on who we are in Christ. We can't do that. We have to be a people that everything about us raises, what is it? A rising tide does what? Floats all boats. How do we be a people that float all boats? Bring everybody closer. That's the goal. That's the kingdom mentality. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.